Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series titled Elijah. We're learning about an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. Thanks for joining us today. At some point, it's probably going to happen to all of us. For each of us, it will be different, and yet it will also be the same. It'll leave us with tears in our eyes and pain in our hearts. We call them tragedies, something that turns our life upside down. Because we live in a world that is stained by sin, these kinds of things will come our way. Perhaps it'll be a tragedy similar to the one we're going to look at in our story this morning where a mother loses her child unexpectedly. Uh, Perhaps it'll be a tragedy of a disease to a body, a, a loved one dying unexpectedly, a broken relationship, a broken body, broken hopes, broken dreams. Perhaps we'll experience a a global or national tragedy that we cannot prepare for. Too numerous to list and too different to summarize. All we can say, unfortunately, is that tragedies are a part of life. And yet, we're told in the Bible that for a a follower of Jesus, since the Holy Spirit of God has worked faith in our lives, we can trust that no matter what we face in life, God is working that for our eternal good. Now, in our passage this morning, as we continue our series this summer, looking at the life of Elijah, we're given two examples of how two different people respond to a tragedy. One of them is a widow who loses her son. The other is Elijah, uh, the person, the prophet that we're studying this summer together as a church family. Now, as a reminder, Elijah was called to be a prophet of God in a time when the people of Israel had turned their back on God. They had begun to worship other gods, specifically a god by the name of Baal, who was the god of rain and fertility. God calls Elijah, this ordinary man from a no-place village, to stand up for him during this time during the people to the people of Israel. We've been learning together that Elijah was, quote, just like us, as James says, and yet God is calling him out of his ordinary life to do something extraordinary. Now, if you've seen, been with us the last two weeks, we recognize, I hope we've all come to the point where we understand how many of us are ordinary. Was Elijah ordinary? So how does Elijah develop into a person of extraordinary faith? We've been discovering God develops us into those kind of people through tests, through trials. As we learned last week, this is the way God is going to grow us. And this morning, if you're following on your notes, Elijah's going to face one more test. If you're on your notes, Elijah will face the test of trusting completely in God's power. So if you haven't already, let me encourage you, invite you to take your Bible, turn it to 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 17. We have black Bibles, once again, available in the seats underneath you there. If you don't have your own Bible with you, I encourage you to grab that. You can find the story on page 283 if you do not own a Bible. Would love for you to take that home today as our gift to you. Before we look at verse 17, though, let's just pause and pray. Father, what a gift it is we can say that word, Abba. On this Father's Day, we recognize that you are perfect, you are loving, you are kind, and you call us to something bigger. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped 
breathing. Now, we're not told here what's wrong with the widow's son, but it's so bad that this widow's son dies. Literally, it says he had no breath left in him. A tragedy has come to this house. How will the widow respond? Let's read verse 18 together on our notes there. It says, she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So she responds to this tragedy in two ways. Number one, if you're on your notes, the widow blames Elijah and God for this tragedy. Did you see this? The first thing she does to Elijah is say, this is your fault. This is happening to me. This is the worst thing that's ever happened, and I'm going to blame you. Does Elijah have any responsibility for the death of this child? Absolutely not. He doesn't deserve this reaction. And yet, even though her son had been fed through the miraculous provision day after day, she takes out her anger on him. Now, I don't want to be too hard on her here, do you? Part of me understands this. I do the same thing. It's so easy for me every day to forget the daily oil and daily flour that God provides in my life. And when something bad happens, I look for somebody or something else to blame. I'm really good at the blame game. I remember a few weeks ago, there was a cup on our counter that I knocked over and it crashed all over the ground. And I blame the person who put the cup too close to the counter. It was not my fault. This is from the very beginning, isn't it? When Adam said, she made me eat it. She made me do it. We tend to blame others. Second, I found this mostly interesting. The widow also blames it on God's judgment for her sin. Did you notice that? She believed that her son's death was God's way of punishing her for her past sin. This reminds me of a question the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9, 2, when they come across a man who was born blind. Notice what they ask him. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is a common belief in these days that suffering happened because of a person's sin or their parents' sin. Unfortunately, I think this kind of bad theology still exists today. I run across so many Christians who believe that our lives are like this moral slot machine with God. If I put in a coin, out comes a good response from God. If I do something bad, I can expect something bad from God. It's like God is this moral genie that we can manipulate. He's a puppet master that's playing with us with his strings. What the disciples are talking about here and what I think the widow believes as well is this false idea that God is up in heaven waiting to punish us as soon as we fall off the rails. So I want to know, don't you want to know? What does Jesus say to a question like this that the disciples ask? What would he say to a tragedy that happens in this widow's life? Look at what he says in John 9, 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This will rock your theology if you believe that God is a moral genie that you can manipulate. His blindness, Jesus says, is in effect an opportunity for me to be glorified. I think it's the same thing here with this widow, friends. Of course, we live in a world that is fallen and imperfect because of sin. And because of that sin, as all of us in this room know all too well, there is suffering and there is tragedy. But Jesus makes it clear here that suffering is not always the direct result of personal sin. And here's what I want to say. 
Sometimes when life hits us the hardest, when we face those tough blows, that is an opportunity, Jesus says, to show the world how a Christian can live differently. If you're familiar with Tim Keller, one of my favorite teachers and pastors right now, he has pancreatic cancer. And you can watch him see this. Obviously, he doesn't want this in his life, but the way he's handling it is an example to so many people around him. It's not how things are supposed to be, the world we live in. Jesus shows how it's supposed to be when he heals this man born blind, nor is it how things will be one day when he makes all things new. But if you're following on your notes, suffering can be an opportunity to glorify God. Back to our story. Let's not blame this widow too severely. Those who have lost a loved one, especially a child, they understand her grief. It's natural because this is not how things are supposed to be. Now let's look at how Elijah responds to this tragedy in verse 19. He says, give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Elijah probably had a separate apartment up on the roof. This was pretty common in those days. That way he had his own place and there was no questions about any compromising here. So he comes down to the room. She's standing there with tears streaming down her eyes, holding her dead child. And at that precise moment, what does Elijah do? All he does is hold out his arms and say, give him to me. I love this. This is a masterclass on how we can help someone else deal with tragedy and suffering in their life. He knows there is nothing he can say at this moment that will help this grieving mother. So he doesn't argue with her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't try to reason with her. He doesn't remind her of all the things she owes him and God for the daily provision of the flour and the oil. He doesn't quote Romans 8, that all things will work together for your good. This is a masterclass of how to respond to someone's tragedy. It's the opposite of what Job's friends did. Do you remember this story? Job, the man who suffered more probably than any human being ever, his friends come to him after this, and they actually do the right thing at first. They just stand there with him and sit there with him and mourn with him. But then they start talking and talking and talking and more talking, explaining to him why all these things were happening in his life. It wasn't helpful. Elijah is a wonderful example, if you're on your notes, that we can respond to others' suffering by simply being present. When I was getting to the end of like needing that kidney transplant, it was the people who simply were supportive and encouraging to me that meant the most to me, just being present with me in those times. Now, we need to step back for a minute and just realize, does Elijah, Elijah deserve what's happening to him right now? He's in a situation from a human point of view that he doesn't deserve. He obeyed God. He went to Ahab like he asked him. He went to Cherith like God asked him. He went from Cherith all the way to enemy territory in Zarephath like God asked him. He's done exactly as God has instructed. He's trusted God, and now he's receiving the brunt of this woman's blame. I love what Charles Swindoll says about this. You can follow on the screen God sometimes seems to put us in the vice, and then he tightens it and tightens it more until we think in the pain of his sovereign squeeze, 
What's he trying to do to me? We walk closer to him and even closer to him. I don't see how we could walk any closer, but still more tests come one on top of the other. That is where Elijah is, but he doesn't waver. He doesn't lose control. He doesn't argue with the widow. He simply says with quiet compassion, give me the boy. Give me the boy. Give me your burden. Let me stand here together with you. And then we read, he climbs the stairways up to his little apartment where he'd been staying. I bet you in this room, Elijah has spent days, weeks, if not months on his knees in prayer again. And I love Swindoll's charge to us here. He says, do you have a room like that? Do you have a place where you meet with God? Do you have a quiet retreat where you and the Lord do regular business together? If you don't, I strongly urge you to provide yourself just such a place because it will be there to help you prepare yourself for moments like this. Without it, you'll lack the necessary steel in the foundation of your faith when tragedies happen. Elijah's ready for this because he has built this habit in his life. Verse 20, then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? I just want you to picture the scene, Elijah carrying this boy that he probably loved at this point placing him on his bed there and going before God in prayer. And I want you to notice something important. Elijah may have been silent before the widow, but not before God. It is before God that Elijah raises his tough questions. Lord, what are you doing? Why would you break the heart of this woman I'm staying with? I've waited on you. I've urged her to trust you. Why? Why? Are you surprised by this, friends? That this great prophet of God, maybe the greatest prophet of all time, would ask, why? Why, God? I was taught early in the church I grew up in that if you ask the why question, you're showing a lack of faith in God. That's another lie we need to get rid of, friends, when it comes to suffering. If you're following, here's some good news for us. God understands and listens to our questions. And I'm so grateful for that. The Bible gives us example after example of godly men and women who asked God the why question. I already mentioned Job. How about Naomi? Jeremiah, David, the Psalms are filled with people pouring out their concerns and heartache because of the suffering and tragedy that they're facing. Did you know that even Jesus himself asked why? Quoting from Psalm 22, 1, as he's hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries? But here's the key. If you're on your notes, it's what we do after we ask why that reveals our faith. The widow blamed God. She blamed her sin. Elijah did something different. Look at verse 21. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Elijah relied solely on one thing in this tragedy. He asked why, and then if you're on your notes, Elijah prayed in faith in the power of the living God. Friends, 
before we move on to be crystal clear here, this doesn't mean that God will always answer our prayers in the way we want him to or the way we think he should answer it. Even Jesus, again, would say, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. But we can still pray in faith in the power of God, the power of God who could raise someone from the dead. And that's what Elijah does. And what happens as a result of his prayer, let's continue, verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That the Lord hears our cries. And the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. If you're following, God revealed his power and raised the dead boy to life. It's a miracle. Truly one of the greatest miracles we read about in the Old Testament. But that's not the only thing that happened this day. I want to point out two other things we see as a result of God's power being displayed. Let's read verse 24 on our notes together there. It says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Two things I notice that result from Elijah's bold prayer of faith. First, Elijah passed every test and is ready for an extraordinary task. Notice Elijah doesn't say, see what I did? Aren't I amazing? That's what I might've done. Or maybe some televangelist would do. It's not what Jesus does, or excuse me, what Elijah does. Elijah simply walks downstairs, holds out the boy to his mother and says, see, everything I've been telling you about my God is true. See? Friends, there are times, as Michelle mentioned in the worship this morning, where God will completely act on his own in power and accomplish the impossible. When God created the world, he didn't need anybody's help. He just spoke and he did it. God's power is limitless. God's power is indescribable. Could he have completely healed this boy on his own? Could he have prevented this disease from ever happening in this boy's life? Answer this question. Yes, absolutely. But have you often noticed, like in this story, God uses his people in the process of displaying his power. He deliberately works his miracles through human instruments through ordinary people. How many ordinary people again? I'm just, I just keep forgetting. Ordinary people who could never have done the impossible on our own, but when filled with God's power can do extraordinary things. Elijah basically says, Lord, you've put me through these tests and I've seen you provide time and time and time Again, and so here I am asking you in desperation to perform the impossible. He then waited, and everything at that moment rested in God's hands. This is the final test for Elijah before the story we're going to look at next week. I can't wait. He's trusted God to provide for him, he's trusted God to prepare for him, and now he's trusting God to display his power through him. And we're going to see all of these tests come to fruition. But again, simply notice, God will not ask us to do extraordinary things until we prove ourselves in ordinary things. 
If there's one thing that I could just communicate to you over these last two weeks, it's that right there. We always think, well, why am I not being asked to do these extraordinary things for God? Well, maybe he's waiting for you to obey the ordinary thing he's asking you to do right in front of you today. One of my friends shared a story of his wife listening to the message last week. She had been debating, applying for this position, uh, and she felt like she was just saying no to God. And finally, after the message on Sunday of the passage, she applied and found out that the job was already filled. But here's all I would say about that. Do you think God was testing her there to see if she would obey? And do you think out of that small act of obedience, he might ask her to step out in some other way? Friends, this is how we grow into extraordinary faith. We take those small steps of obedience. As we pass those tests, God will ask us to do greater and more extraordinary things. Second result, you have to see this in verse 24, is that the widow finally places her faith in the God of Israel. You can always tell when God is the one at work because instead of seeing Elijah, she sees the God behind Elijah, publicly confessing her faith in him. She now knows Elijah is a true servant of God, not just another religious teacher looking for some support. She knows his word is truth and she gives herself to him. This is exactly what should happen when people see our faith and God's power at work in our lives. If you're on your notes, when God works in us, people will see God's power, not ours. I've shared this story before, but it's just the most vivid memory I have. I once preached here on Philippians 2. It's that amazing story of how Jesus left all his power behind in heaven and became a servant even becoming obedient to death on a cross. Next day, Monday morning, I'm working out at the fit club. And I had this woman kind of approach me very weirdly. I'm like, oh no, what's gonna happen here? And she said, how did you do that? I said, excuse me, do what? I mean, were you doing something with the lights or were you manipulating something? How did you have God's presence in that room? Like, I'm not the Wizard of Oz pulling strings here. You encountered God's power. There's no other way to describe it. She was simply in awe, asking if I had simply done something to manipulate that. I sure wish I could, but I simply cannot. We are God's instruments, relying completely on him to show up. And that's what I want to focus on the rest of our time this morning. Real important question for us, Cherry Hills. Do you believe that God can display his power in your life still today. How many of you have ever seen a guy like this? We don't have it. Have you ever watched the World's Strongest Man competition? As a latchkey kid, Gen Xer, this is what I did when I got home from school, right? Something amazing about watching these incredibly strong men do these incredibly weird things. And part of it is, is that we have this obsession with power in our culture today. Think about it. Think of all the power words we have. We have power bars, PowerPoint presentations, power windows, power lunches, power workouts, power puff girls, power rangers, power naps. I see some of you enjoying that right now. <laughs> Political power, world powers, power, power, power. The problem is most people today can't tell you what true power is, and I think that has crept its way into the church and how we view God. When we say God is powerful, yeah, we 
understand that, but I think we read stories like this and go, man, that was cool for them back then, how God would really show up in power. I think, friends, we need to come back and realize the same God of Elijah is the same God we sit here and serve today. So why? Why don't we see this kind of power? This is a question that's haunted me for 10 plus years. I think of the story when Jesus goes back to his hometown, right? And he can't perform any miracles there. Why? Because they know him. They're familiar with him. Isn't this Jesus, the carpenter? And I wonder if sometimes we've just gotten so familiar with Jesus, we don't expect him to do anything powerful anymore. The God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ is the eternal, infinite, almighty God. He is totally powerful. Any of the ways we use power today cannot even match the description of who God is. The theological word we use to describe God's power is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. English word, when they're talking about God's power in the Bible, is he's almighty. This comes from the Hebrew word, if you're following on your notes there, that God is El Shaddai, which means the God who moves mountains, or more literally, the God of the mountains. So listen, anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across God Almighty, they're talking about this omnipotent, powerful God that has no limits. He has mountain-moving power. This is the God Elijah believed in. And he did indeed move mountains here. Can he still move mountains today? I'm just gonna challenge us this morning to remove our thoughts that we've had limits placed on God, on what he can do. He is even more bigger and powerful than we could ever ask or imagine. Jeremiah writes about this in Jeremiah 32. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? Jesus in Luke 18 says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God is all powerful and he could do anything he wants. But here's the incredible thing. I don't understand it. It's not how I would have done it. God wants to use his power through his people. God wants to display his power through his people. I want you to read Romans 8, 11 on your notes there, out loud with me there. Ready, it says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I want you to read that again to yourself right now. Read it again. Isn't that incredible? Spirit of God could display his power in any way, shape, form he would choose, but his plan is to place the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that raised this widow's boy from the dead into the lives of his followers. So why don't we see more of this? Why don't we experience this kind of power working in our lives, perhaps like Jesus' hometown? We just don't expect it anymore. It's a great story from a pastor named Mark Galley. I'm gonna read it because it's just great. But some refugees from Laotia had started coming to his church. He's a pastor in Sacramento and he, they wanted to be baptized. But he said, well, before we do that, how, how about we do a Bible study in the gospel of Mark? And they were all for it. And he starts the story by saying, despite the Laotians' lack of Christian knowledge, or maybe because of it, the Bible studies were some of the most interesting I've ever led. 
After we read the passage in which Jesus calms the storm, I began as I usually did with more theologically sophisticated groups. I asked them about the storms in their lives. There was a puzzled look among my Laotian friends, so I elaborated. We all have storms, problems, worries, troubles, crises, and this story teaches that Jesus can give us peace in the midst of those storms. So what are your storms, I asked. Again, more puzzled silence. Finally, one of the men hesitantly asked, do you mean that Jesus actually called the wind and the sea in the middle, or called the wind and the sea in the middle of the storm? I thought he was finding this story incredulous, and I didn't want to get distracted with the problem of miracles. So I replied, yes, but we should not get hung up on the details of the miracle. We should remember that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. Again, another stretch of awkward silence ensued until another replied, well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he must be a powerful man. At this, they all nodded vigorously and chatted excitedly to one another in Lao. Except for me, the room was full of wonder. I suddenly realized that they grasped the story better than I did. Elijah trusted that God would work in power, and he did. Since it's Father's Day, I thought I would bring one of my power tools. Tim Allen, right? This is us. What did Romans 8, 11 say? So why don't we see more power in our lives? Why is the American church especially so impotent? Because we don't plug ourselves into the source. Elijah learned something we all need to learn. We must plug ourselves into the source with full faith, with desperation, trusting that the same God who created the world now lives in you, lives in me. If you're on your notes, God's power only flows in those who have faith to plug it in. For those who expect it, for those who are desperate for it, this is what prayer is all about. Prayer, desperate prayer, done in the right spirit like Elijah is the ultimate act of giving God control of our lives and plugging into him, believing he still wants to reveal his power, acknowledging, listen, apart from this, this is me. I can go about talking to my neighbors about faith. I can go about in my prayer life. I can go about raising my kids. Or I can plug in and start to see real things happen. We have to recognize we are still serving El Shaddai today. The God who moves mountains. Now is the time to plug ourselves in. Our city, our world, our country desperately needs a movement of God's power today. Amen? Do you believe he will do that through you and in you? you're following on your notes, do I believe God's power can flow in my life for his glory? You know, I love history. History has told us that every great revival, every great movement of the Holy Spirit of God begins with two things, repentance and prayer. This is the test we must pass if we want to move from ordinary to extraordinary faith, believing that El Shaddai still alive and well, 
And he still wants to move mountains in our lives, in the people's lives that are around us. Oh, that we would become like Elijah, praying desperately and urgently for him to show up in our lives and have a movement of his power. Can you imagine what would happen in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our city, and in this country if we stepped out, plugged into the source of all power. It's time, friends. There's so many lonely and anxious and suffering people in the world right now, and we serve El Shaddai, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same God who has put that power in each of us who claim to follow Jesus. Let's trust him and expect a great movement to happen in this place. Let's pray. Lord, I will be the first to stand up here and confess it's so easy to go through the motions of following you. Day after day, not expecting anything, saying my prayer before dinner, wondering why I don't see anything extraordinary happen. We repent of that. All that means, friends, we just turn away from that apathy. And we look to you, El Shaddai, the mountain-moving God. And we cry out to you. We need to see your work in this city. We need to see your work in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in this church. Give us the faith, the desperation. Help us to surrender to you, believing that you can still move mountains today. I want to be a part of something like that. So as we each take individual responsibility for our own lives, corporately we cry out to you, move in power among us. Create in us a new heart. Move us from ordinary to extraordinary. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. We pray this with expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.